Good morning. Good morning to those listening on podcasts and watching on live stream as well. Well, today is the final instalment of the first half of Mark My Words. Uh, we've reached chapter eight and uh, we're going to be picking up, as Dan said, on chapter nine in just over a month's time after we've had all the Christmas services and New Year services as well. Over the last seven weeks, we have been introduced to Jesus, the way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in darkness. He is the one who has authority over demons and disease and even death. He is the one who can heal. He is the one who can forgive. He is the one who can still a raging storm. He is the one who can walk on water. He is the one who can cast demons into a herd of pigs and raise a dead girl and create a new hand for a man whose hand was shriveled like inflating a deflated balloon. And Jesus could also pray over five small loaves and two fishes and feed a multitude of maybe 15,000 people. But his authority wasn't only demonstrated in his power over sickness and in his extraordinary miracles, but he spoke words which were authoritative. No one had ever spoken like him. He called people to follow him, and they did. Fishermen, tax collectors, freedom fighters. I tell you what, what a motley bunch of guys. If they had taken vocational and aptitude tests, I doubt if any of them would have been recommended by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. <laughs> Don't think any of them would have got a position in Jesus' new organization. And Mark tells us that people were amazed at the teaching of Jesus because he spoke with authority. In chapter 8, Jesus continues to surprise people with his, his miraculous provision. And on a previous occasion, he had uh, fed 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish with 12 baskets of food left over. But at the start of chapter 8, we read that he fed another 4,000, this time um, with seven loaves and a few small fish and had seven baskets of food left over. Amazing! Well, it would be amazing to us. But it wasn't to everyone. Following this astonishing miracle, Jesus was questioned by the religious Pharisees. And Mark tells us in chapter 8, in verse 11, that in order to test him, they asked Jesus for a sign from heaven. I can hardly believe that. I don't know if you can. Considering what Jesus, wasn't me, sorry, perhaps I, I'm too heavy or something, I don't know, but can you believe that? Considering everything that Jesus had already done, that they had the audacity to ask Jesus for a sign. His miracles obviously weren't enough for them. They wanted something more compelling. I'm not sure what they were expecting, but it certainly demonstrates their hardness of hearts and their prejudice. Come on, Jesus. You've done enough of these small-time miracles like feed 5,000 people and heal dead people. We want something now big-time. 
Why don't you do something a little bit more spectacular? And I'm sure there are people we all know who are just like that. Nothing that you can ever say or do will ever convince them. Their motto is, my mind is made up, don't confuse me with the facts. I've made my decision. But then we read in chapter 8 that Jesus and his disciples arrived in Bethsaida. And they, there, were, there were people who brought a blind man to Jesus, hoping that Jesus was going to touch him. He took this blind man outside the village. And then we are told that Jesus spat on the man's eyes and placed his hands on him. And I know what you're thinking. Gross. In chapter 7, Jesus spat, on, uh, uh, spat and touched the deaf and mute man's tongue. More gross. I just want to let you know, by the way, I've instructed the prayer ministry team <laughs> that they can pray in the name of Jesus, but no spitting, okay? So you're okay. It was, uh, it was rather amusing. A, few, a couple of days ago, uh, my daughter, Sean, uh, told me that um, as a family, they had been working their way, as they do each week, through uh, Mark's Gospel. And they got to that incident in chapter 7 when Jesus spat and then touched the man's tongue. And then they asked Amelie, aged eight, what she thought about it. Well, Amelie thought for a few moments and then responded with, do you think Jesus was having a breakdown? <laughs> Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings. Jesus then asked the blind man, do you see anything? His reply, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now that story is quite unique. It's the only time in the Bible where we have a two-stage miracle. The first stage that the man was unable to see, he'd been blind, he was unable to see, but at the first attempt, his vision was blurry. Only when Jesus touched him a second time that he sees clearly. We have nothing else like this in the Gospels. But we know also that everything that Jesus did, he did for a purpose. So what's going on here then? Did Jesus simply fail at his first attempt? Maybe Jesus had an off day. Maybe Jesus lacked faith. Maybe he had a late night and he was feeling washed out and wasted. Of course not. None of those things are sensible to say. So why did Jesus then require two attempts at healing him? Now we've learned in this church over many years that when we are trying to understand the scriptures, uh, there are three rules for interpretation. I've said it lots and lots of times, so most of you will know. You know what those three rules of interpretation are. Context, context, context. And we need to ask three very important questions here so that we can perhaps understand a little bit better what this story is all about and what we are being told. And the first question that we've got is always, what kind of literature am I reading? Now, as you know, the Bible isn't just one book. It's 66 books, and in the Bible, we have various genres of writing. And by that, I mean that you have laws, history, poetry, 
wisdom writings, prophecies, letters to churches, letters to individuals, biography, apocalyptic writings. Now, it's fairly obvious, really, that most of you would not read your mortgage contract in the same way you would lead, read a poem, in the same way you would read a letter from a friend, in the same way you would read a biography of Winston Churchill or whoever. And it's important for us to recognise that when we are coming to the Bible that what is the kind of genre that we are actually reading and therefore what I am saying you can't read the book of Deuteronomy in the same way as you read the book of John, for example. So that's the first question. Whenever you come into Scripture and you think, well, what's this mean? How, do, how does this all apply? You need to ask that question. It's the genre question. Then there's a second uh, question. What is happening at that time and in that place? In other words, it's a question about historical context. We need to remember that the Bible was written for us. Of course it was, but it wasn't written to us. The various books of the Bible were written in a particular historical context and for a particular reason. And when we can begin to understand why the author wrote what he wrote in the way that he wrote it, then it will help us get a little bit of a handle on what that passage might be about and what it means to us today. So that's the second question. And then the third question is, what is the context of the passage? So this is all about literary context. And that is, if we are reading a verse that we don't understand, that we need to read the verses that come before it, need to read the verses that come after it. Uh, we need to read probably the passage that comes before it, the passage that comes after it. And sometimes, you know, in order to truly understand, it's not just that, we need to go further back and read the chapters before that and the chapters after you see, some of the trickiest passages, when we do that, begin to make sense to us. Let me give you an obvious example. Most of us here today know that great chapter on love. 1 Corinthians 13 is uh, read in weddings, often read in funerals as well. But to truly understand what is going on in that chapter, the chapter on love as we, we know it to be, we also have to read 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. And by doing so, you will discover that the theme is not so much love, but actually what Paul is writing about is the use and abuse of spiritual gifts within a church setting. You see, the Bibles only first ever had um, chapters and verses in about the 16th century. Uh, human invention to help us find the passage that we're looking for. And for the most part, I think most of us would say, yeah, Chapters and verses are quite helpful, but sometimes they can actually be unhelpful because a new chapter cuts across a particular train of thought. And that's why we need to do this. We need to read what's coming before and what's coming afterwards. Now, it's the third of these uh, questions, I think, is really important this morning when we are looking at what is happening in Mark chapter 8. So, coming back to that chapter, we've got this unique story of Jesus having two attempts at healing a blind man. So we need to find out what's happening in the, the context immediately before and also immediately after this story. And what's happening in the rest of the chapter. And we need to keep our eyes open for any clues that we might have. We need to do some detective work. 
I'm sure that um, many of you will use uh, GPS systems on your phones, um, perhaps to find that street or that meeting place, that destination that you're meeting up maybe with a friend. And occasionally, when you're using a GPS, what you need to do is zoom out, yes? Zoom out in order to get a perspective, get a better feel on where you are in relation to where you're going. You pinch the screen of your tablet or your phone and or click the minus sign, it, it all becomes clearer to you. And that's what I think that we need to do this morning with this story of this blind man. We need to zoom out and we need to discover what else we can see. Immediately before this unique healing, Jesus speaks to these hard-hearted Pharisees, the Pharisees who had asked him for a sign, they, they couldn't believe that Jesus was authentic, that he was the real deal. And a conversation ensues with these religious Pharisees. And Jesus um, then told his disciples, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Verse 15, if you're chasing it through in your Bibles. Now, in the Bible... Yeast is a symbol for something. Any of you know? No, that's oil. Sin, evil, corruption, okay? Whenever you see yeast, it's very often that's what's being spoken about. And Jesus is speaking here about the, the evil or the corruption of the Pharisees. But the disciples, a bit like, like some of you actually, <laughs> The disciples didn't pick up what Jesus was saying. And they thought Jesus was talking about them forgetting to buy bread to bring onto the boat for the boat trip. They weren't that bright, unlike you, of course. And this wasn't the first time that they failed to understand Jesus. Let's look at verse 17 there. Aware of the discussion, Jesus said to them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes to see and ears to hear? And don't you remember, when I broke five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. Then he said to them, do you still not understand? So the immediate context of this story of the blind man being healed at the second attempt, the context is that Jesus had been rebuking the disciples for their spiritual blindness. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes to see and ears to hear? Now that's really important and that's a bit of a clue for us. So let's continue with our detective work in understanding this. That's not the first time that Mark informs us of the spiritual blindness of the disciples. In chapter 7, wasn't that a great talk that Dan gave last week? Really excellent. Um, Jesus, in, in chapter 7, explains to the Pharisees that ceremonial washing of hands and plates and cups, that doesn't make a person clean. It's not what goes into a person, into the person uh, as mouth that makes them unclean, but rather what is comes, comes out of their hearts. The disciples, again, didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. So they asked him 
the meaning of his parable. And Jesus replied in chapter 7, verse 18, Are you so dull? Don't you love Jesus? Calls a spade a spade. Doesn't fanny around. He goes straight for the juggler. Are you so dull? Spiritual blindness again. If you go back even further than this into chapter 6, following that miraculous um, uh, feeding of the 5,000, the disciples got on the boat, each with a basket full of food left over from this incredible miracle. And then they became very afraid in the middle of the night when Jesus walked to them on the lake. Why were they so afraid? Well, Mark tells us in Mark chapter 6, verse 52. They became so afraid, for they had not understood about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. In other words, because they didn't understand the previous miracle of feeding of the 5,000, they didn't understand who Jesus truly was. Even though they had tangible evidence at Jesus, at their feet of Jesus' power to provide. And when the next trial came along, they panicked all over again. And the reason was that they weren't able to grasp, truly grasp, who Jesus was and what he was saying about himself. If you go back further in chapter 4, following the time that Jesus stilled the storm, do you remember what the disciples said? Who is this? Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So Mark, throughout his writings, is emphasizing and re-emphasizing this kind of spiritual blindness that the disciples had. Okay, more importantly, let's move forward now. Um, what comes immediately after this miracle? Well, we can pick it up from verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But he, what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. And when you think of it, this is an absolutely huge step forward for them. The very first words that we find in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, Christ is Messiah, it's a synonym, the Son of God. The beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So you've got it right from the very start. You've got Mark's purpose is to declare that the good news is all about Jesus, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And at last, at last, drum roll, fanfare of trumpets. Eight chapters later, Peter eventually gets it. But does he? But does he? Verse 31, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed after about, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Just in case you missed that, that's Peter rebuking 
Jesus. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Ouch. Ouch. Those are strong words, aren't they? What on earth is going on here? Well, what's going on is this, is that Peter acknowledges Jesus as the Messiah, but he doesn't understand what sort of a Messiah Jesus was. You see, in Jewish thinking at the time that uh, Jesus walked this earth, it was believed that God would send his Messiah, that's the Hebrew word for Christ, which is the Greek. And the Messiah was going to be a valiant leader who was going to break off the yoke of Roman oppression for the best part of 600 years before this, that the, um, the, the Jewish people had been oppressed and enslaved in their own land by a whole range of world superpowers. First of all, there was the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans after them. Surely that couldn't be right. Surely that's not right at all. Because they, they were God's special people. Surely that God will come and balance the scales of this injustice. And that's what the Old Testament prophets prophesied about, the Messiah who was to come. And the people of Jesus' day understood that this Messiah was to be someone who was at the front of the battle, a soldier, valiant, victorious. Someone just like Moses who had led the Israelites out of Egypt 1,200 years before. That's what they were expecting. So given Peter's Jewish background, we can understand why Peter was so upset with Jesus. What do you mean, Jesus? What? what? You, 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 you're going to suffer? You're going to be rejected? You're going to be killed? Can't be. You're the Messiah. You get the thinking. Yes, Jesus was and is the Messiah, but not the kind of Messiah that Peter and his fellow Jews were hoping for. And Jesus, as we read in those great chapters in Isaiah's prophecy, he was to be a different kind of Messiah, one who was a suffering servant, not the military leader that they'd expected. Now, I'm not going to jump into what's happening over the next uh, two chapters, but Jesus helps Peter and the disciples more clearly see what kind of Messiah he was. That he'd not come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, let's go back to this story because we haven't really dealt with this story and understood it properly of what is happening here with this blind man's healing. The question we asked was, why did Jesus choose to heal in two phases. You can see in the scriptures, on other occasions, he didn't do that. On other occasions, he just said, be healed, and people were healed. To the centurion, he said, go, and it will be done just as you believed it would. He said to the deaf man that we looked at last week, be opened to the storm, be still, to Lazarus, come out. But on this occasion, he asked the man, do you see anything? Very different approach, isn't it? It was deliberate. There was a reason behind this two-staged healing. And the reason, I believe, was that this was a vivid picture 
This was a living parable, if you like. This was an enactment of the blindness, the spiritual blindness of the disciples. You see, Peter saw who Jesus was, but not clearly. His sight of what he saw in Jesus when he pronounced and proclaimed him to be the Messiah was the equivalent of that guy seeing people like trees walking around. That Peter had some sight of who Jesus was. But what he was really seeing was a blurry image because he recognized who Jesus was, the Messiah, but he had no idea whatsoever what Jesus had ultimately come to do. To die on a cross for the sins of the world. It's quite fascinating really to observe that the disciples' spiritual blindness continued. This kind of seeing Jesus but not seeing him. All the way through, even after the resurrection, all the way right up to the ascension. Just moments before the ascension of Jesus, they asked the question in Acts chapter 1. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Oh, come on, guys. <laughs> and Jesus answered, it's not for you to know. Actually, on that occasion, Jesus was quite kind to them. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jeru Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Wow. Fancy that. Right up to the moment that Jesus was taken from them, they still didn't get it. They still didn't fully understand Jesus. They still didn't fully understand his mission. Okay. A lot of teaching there, a lot of trying to understand what's going on. So what's the message for us today? What's the challenge? Well, let's read on. Verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with the, his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory for with his holy angels. Now Peter and the disciples were just like that man that Jesus healed. They saw... But at the same time, they didn't see. And maybe our spiritual sight on times can also be a bit blurred. That we see, yes, he's the Messiah, but perhaps the wrong kind of Messiah. With Peter, we might confess him to be the Christ, the Son of God. But then we distance ourselves when he challenges us on how we are living for him. We might hail him as saviour, but fail to see him as Lord. We might see Jesus as the giver of eternal life, but fail to realise that he requires our lives in return. We might focus our attention on the cross as we have done in our service this morning, but fail to realise that the cross is that which we also have been called to. We might seek to gain life, but we are 
unwilling to die to ourselves. For Jesus said that it's only through losing our lives can we save them. We might claim to be more than conquerors through Christ who loved us, but fail to acknowledge that the greatest we can become in the kingdom of heaven is a servant. That the call for each of us is to the basin and the towel. We might be ecstatic over God's grace, that we are loved eternally and unconditionally, that we are recipients of that love which is undeserved, unearned, unwarranted, unmerited, yet we get blurred vision when we are called to extend that same grace to equally undeserving people. Are you with me? You see, that is a kind of spiritual blindness that I also, from time to time, suffer from. And probably, my guess is that most of you do too. Over the years, I've come to love and appreciate Jesus more and more. He is far more exciting, far more groundbreaking, far more life-transforming, far more revolutionary, far more countercultural than anyone that I have ever known and anyone I have ever read about. He is the best of the best of the best of humanity. No one is in his league, the man who is God. I personally have become captivated, enthralled, enchanted, mesmerized. By Jesus as a person, his sacrificial love, the message of his resurrection, I've been intellectually convinced that he is Emmanuel, God with us. I saw love, his big-hearted acceptance of sinners, of the marginalized. I love his straight talking. But I need to ask myself, have I on occasions ever wanted to create a version of the Christian faith which is drenched in sentiment but devoid of sacrifice? Yeah? I just wonder, is that a question you want to ask for yourselves this morning? That you've created something which is different than what Jesus brought to us? Am I on times as spiritually blind as the disciples were? Is my mind closed? Am I blinkered in my understanding? Am I seeing, but at the, not, at the same time not seeing? Julie is reading a, a great book at the moment by an American um, uh, theologian. And the great title of this book, and it's called The Sin of Certainty. The Sin of Certainty. Great title, great book. But are there so t- times when we're so convinced that we are correct in our understanding, so adamant that we are right, that we have simply closed our minds to learning anything new. Personally, I'm on a journey. Oh boy. I'm on a journey. I'm certainly not in the place I was, but neither am I in the place where one day I will be. To use Paul's words, we look through a glass darkly. I presently see but a poor reflection. But I also thank God that there is a time coming when I shall see him face to face and I shall not know in part any longer. For I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. What about you? What about you? Can I ask you this morning, how how teachable are you? 
How open to God are you? How resistant are you to learning new things? Are you open-minded, open-hearted? Or are you entrenched in your views? Peter saw clearly who Jesus was, but he didn't really get what Jesus had come to do. And the Lord needed to teach him. There was some work yet to do in his life. I know that the Lord has yet work to do in my life. What about you? Guys, would you like to come back? We're going to pray. And I'm just going to pray by quoting a few words from a song a friend of mine wrote a few years ago. You know the words, for many of you do at least. <coughs> Your thoughts are so much higher than mine, I see so dimly at times. Your ways are so much higher than mine, and yet you care about my life. That's quite an admission, isn't it? Teach me to trust you. Teach me to hold to you. Teach me to walk with you, even though sometimes I'm blind. Teach me to run to you. Teach me to come to you. Teach me to trust you, Lord, and your plan for my life. Teach me to trust your ways, oh Lord. Would you stand, please? Lord, those are our words today. Teach us, Lord, to trust you. Teach us, Lord, to hold on to you. And teach us, Lord, to walk with you, even though sometimes we're blind. Lord, we pray that you might open our eyes, open our ears, give us understanding, receptive hearts. Lord, we truly want to know you more. Forgive us, Lord, for our foolishness, our blindness, our stubbornness, our lack of faith and trust in you. And Lord, I just pray that you will bring us to a place of praise and honour where we can be your praise and honour through lives which are passionate and dedicated to serving your purposes in your world. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.